Welcome back to another episode of the Mike Janella Show. I'm your host, Mike. Obviously, this is my 61st podcast episode. Shout out, Roger Maris. Hopefully, it won't be my last. And this week, I have a man who has travailed and traversed the country to write a book about sports venues, stadiums, arenas, everything across America. Sounds like a dream gig and an awesome book. Even for those of us who don't actually hold physical books anymore, it's an amazing read. You can find it wherever you want. And he's here to talk to me about how he did it, where he went, what he saw, and some of the best stories of his time going to these uh, churches, these athletic churches and cathedrals across our great country Rafi Cohan. Rafi, what's up, man? Hey, Mike. Uh, not much. How you doing? I am doing hey. very well. Uh, I mean, you've been the one doing all this this press and for this book of yours, The Arena. How are you doing? You've been able to catch your breath or what? Yeah, you know, just trying to, you know, keep the vocal cords fresh, drinking some lemon and apple cider vinegar, but, you know, oh. catch a few few nights of sleep when I can, but yeah, everything's going great. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with him before this podcast, Rafi is a writer and editor. He's contributed to a bunch of places you've heard of for sure. GQ, The Wall Street Journal, Men's Journal, Rolling Stone, and now, this is your first book, right, Rafi? It is, my first. Yeah, the, the arena, inside the tailgating, ticket scalping, mascot racing, dubiously funded and possibly haunted monuments of American sport. I got it all in there, right? The title? I th- unless yeah, unless there was a few other clauses that uh, you know that the, that the publishers slipped in there, I'm pretty sure that's it. But that's the whole thing about uh, these sports venues across America, though, and the world, really. But I think more so in our country than others, it is all of those things and all those clauses and more, and that's why they're so they lend themselves so well to being written about. We'll talk about the book in a sec, Rafi, but the first thing I got to ask you because I ask everybody this question, no matter who the guest is on my show to kick off the show. What's the best thing to happen to you in the past week? It can be anything about your life, but the last seven days, what's been your highlight? Oh, man, the highlight of, uh, of, of in my past week, I guess it's, I mean, it's just got to be as a, you know, as we were discussing before the show, you know, I have a young daughter, she's about five months old, and it's maybe not a singular event, but anytime I can pick her up and, you know, she gives me a big smile, it just kind of, you know, that that that's doing it for me right now. I mean, new daughter, nothing nothing beats that, right? Which is, I'm sure, every single day or every single week, there's something new that she does or that happens between you that, that brings a smile to your face. So that's awesome, man! Congratulations. Oh yeah, yeah. She just found her feet, and now she's like sticking them in her in her mouth. It's pretty awesome. Game changer. <laughs> the feet are a game changer. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to try and get this podcast done before you have to go back and, and tend to her. So, so let's get to it. Um, you, you've done and all this. You wanna, pre- if you want to know the you know the worst thing, then I'll tell you about how I had to change your diaper on the street corner while I was walking down Red Hook. Oh, jeez. Don't need to go there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm 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 single. I'm childless. And for all those stories you hear about how it changes your life so much for the better, then it's the I'm changing a shitty diaper in the middle of Brooklyn, and it, it sort of balances yeah. out for me. Yeah, it's like an oil slick. Oh man, yeah. Dave, let's let's we'll see that for for the poop podcast that we're gonna start next week. Uh, but let's stick to the book this time around uh, for this show. Uh, how's it going so far? Because the book came out; it's been out a couple months already. Uh, so I mean, you don't have to get into specifics, but uh, the critical reception, sales numbers, public reaction. Are you happy with how everything's been received? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to know, you know, exactly, you know, um, you know how uh, you know how deep. 
you know, the sort of penetration, cultural penetration is, but it does seem like, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to talk to a lot of interesting people like yourself and have gotten, uh, you know, gotten some good write-ups in various places. Um, most, uh, most exciting for me was a, a write-up in the Wall Street Journal by a guy named, a writer named Will Blythe, who was, uh, who's an amazing sports writer. He wrote a book called To Hate Like This Is To Be Happy Forever uh, about uh, the UNC Duke rivalry. Um, and so I've always just been a really a big, been a big fan of his. So that was a pretty big thrill uh, to have him uh, write about the book. Um, I had a, a, you know, was had, had I've written a couple pieces that I've uh, published here and there. So it seems like you know it's getting out there in some ways. And you know, it's hard to know, you know, when you when you're on a radio, a sports radio show, whether uh, whether all the sports fans are running out to Barnes and Noble or not. But hopefully, eventually, you know. <laughs> Hopefully, eventually, anyone who like you know hears about it will eventually get around to checking it out. And I don't think it's just for sports fans by any means. But I, you know, certainly I think that's been uh, that's been the big push, just to try and uh, you know to try and get into the ear holes of sports fans and you know just get in their get in their subconscious so they see this long subtitle at some point and, and say, oh yeah, I heard about that. I remember that A little Inception festering in their in their mind. Well, that's how you and I came across each other's paths was because you came on a show I host for my day job at Little Things, and they are not sports-centric at all. But you and I were able to chat about all these different layers and levels to sporting venues across the country, and so much of our audience really loved it. So I think to your point, this is a book for anybody, sports or not, because it's not about what's happening between the lines. It's about the human interest stories and the architecture and the history and the weird jobs and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's a, it's a, it was a great subject to tackle. Oh, well, thanks, man. I mean, thank you for saying that. And uh, I mean, I really do think so. I mean, it's kind of like how I pitch the book and how I even write about it in the intro. As I say, you know, it's really not a book about sports. It's more like a book around sports because it's kind of everything but the game. It's a deep dive into into all those things from, you know, mascotting to ticket scalping to groundskeeping. And it's really about sort of like the, the human stories, like the people behind the scenes and then kind of like the weird logistics that make these places run, you know, the quirky histories. Uh, and it's, you know, it's really, I mean, at its core, I think the book is really a book about America. You know, these are American sports stadiums and they're places we come together. They show us uh, you know, they show us, you know, why the why we come together. They're how we come together, uh, and I just think that stadiums are an interesting lens through which to view the American culture, to sort of see who we are, what kind of people we are, what we care about. Um, so yeah, really at its core, I think you know, I think you can learn about us, you know, as a nation. Beautifully put, so poetic. Uh, so. So the short story is that you you traveled across the country to achieve this goal to look at us as a people, as a society through this lens, or even just to check out a cool game at a cool spot. Uh, but give well, us the long story. How much time did you dedicate to this? How many stadiums did you actually visit? Were you attending as a member of the media? Or were you sitting in the nosebleeds with the fans? Give us more of the, the, the deeper strokes of how this whole project came together. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, in, in total, I mean, basically I was on the road, um, not the entire time, but from January 2015 through February 2016. Uh, I was probably traveling, like actively traveling for like 26 weeks at, you know, in 2015. So like half the year. Um, and while I was home, I, you know, I live in Brooklyn. Um, 
so I would still be exploring venues around here. I spent a bunch of time at City Field, Prudential Center, MetLife, uh, MetLife Stadium, and or even just like popping up to Fenway Park or down to Philly. Uh, so I really, my goal was to just see as many places as I could over the course of that year. I was going to give myself one year to travel and explore. Uh, and really everywhere I went, I kind of had an agenda of what I wanted to you know, learn about. Because um, the way the book breaks down is there are 11 chapters and each chapter kind of uh, explores a, a different element of the stadium experience, kind of those different you know, subtitle clauses, you know, whether it's you know, fan entertainment or old stadiums or new stadiums or groundskeeping. And so everywhere I went, I knew I wanted to focus on a, that, like that specific topic area very broadly. And then once I got there, I would try to spend maybe like 10 days to two weeks in every city that I, you know, that I visited uh, to really, you know, immerse myself in what it is, what it was that I, you know, up until that point, you know, knew minimal about, you know, whether, you know, example of a, of uh, ticket scalping is, you know, I show up in Cleveland, Ohio. I know that it's going to be an exciting time on the streets because it was LeBron James's first uh, postseason back after having returned to Cleveland from Miami. Um, I didn't have any inroads to any of those scalpers by any means, but I just figured it's going to be an exciting time. So I showed up, you know, in the first my first couple of forays into questioning, you know, those ticket scalpers was. You know, I show up with a, uh, you know, an open notebook and, you know, maybe uh, my my voice recorder. This and guy's asking, a narc. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Start asking questions and the guy, dudes just turn away. I mean, I get like a, uh, I can't even get the time of day from these guys. So I'm like, can't, you know, nobody wants to talk to me and I get it. No, you know, no offense taken. I mean, dude shows up asking questions with a notebook and you're scalping tickets, probably smarter move is to not talk to that guy. Uh, but you know, I spent enough time there that I, then all of a sudden I sort of, you know, made my way in with a group of, uh, like merch vendors, like sidewalk merch vendors, um, just by sort of hanging around and asking them questions and then realizing that I wasn't an asshole. Uh, and then, you know, eventually they kind of turned me on to some of the ticket scalpers. Turns out that maybe they were running a little bit of a sideline themselves uh, in ticket scalping. So that didn't hurt either. Uh, but then by get, kind of getting a foot in the door and then the foot in the door with the next guy, which was a scalper named Big Mike, uh, who worked with uh, my friend uh, Tom McCarthy, who ran that sidewalk, uh, that sidewalk uh, merch stand. Suddenly, like I, he takes me under his wings. And for the next 10 days, you know, everywhere we go, he's like he vouches for me and like suddenly the world opens up and and I'm and the, the, the scalping world in Cleveland is, you know, is my oyster. I can ask any of these guys any questions I want. Some of them like think about saying no to me or being, you know, being a dick back. But then, they, you know, someone will be like, no, nah, no, nah, it's cool. He's with Big Mike. And suddenly, you know, I, I have access to this world that, you know, and when I first showed up was basically a stonewall. So that's kind of what I mean. That's kind of everywhere I went. I wanted, you know, to really just kind of become that fly on the wall so that the world would would open itself to me. Um, sometimes it would be more it would be a little bit more set up, obviously, like, you know, if I was dealing with a team, I would, you know, I would set up interviews ahead of time if I was interviewing like a, you know, team president or their marketing department or you know, their team historian or the groundskeepers or whatever it might be that obviously needed that kind of like official, uh, you know, that official uh, um, introduction. 
uh, but everyone, but almost nowhere I went did I go as like, um, you know, a quote unquote member of the press. I mean, obviously I had like press passes, like they, I, I you know, I, I tried to stretch my dollars as far as I could go. I think I went to to answer one of your questions in this long and rambling answer. Is that, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I went, I think I went to something like thirty stadiums. Um, over the course of this trip. And again, that's because I was being really targeted with where I wanted to go. You know, it wasn't just trying to hit as many places as possible, but to try to find those venues that were like really good examples of those sort of topic areas that I wanted to dive into. Um, so again, Cleveland for ticket scalping, you know, for, uh, you know, for, for um, groundskeeping, I went to Atlanta because their, their head groundskeeper is like a, you know, a renowned master of the craft. Um, so, so, uh, but I still everywhere, I, but not every one of those places necessarily written up in the book. I did try and hit wherever I could go just to, you know, if I was passing through Pittsburgh, I would check out PNC Park, um, not to necessarily include it, but just because, uh, and while they would give me a press pass, I definitely, I wasn't necessarily watching the games or sitting in the press box. I was trying to like fully dive into these worlds. That was one of the biggest surprises to me in some ways, actually, was how little I got to watch of the games, the actual games. <laughs> I like, I barely got to watch any sports, uh, which was amazing. I thought I would get to see so many games, but in reality, I was like hanging out in like the mascot room or like the groundskeeping clubhouse. And even if I was hanging out as a fan, like let's, you know, I, you know, watched a, watched a game in the black hole with like the, the, the Raider nation fans in Oakland. I still wasn't, I was paying attention to the game, but only to see how like the fans were reacting to it. Cause I was really, you know, I was really reporting on them, not so much on the game itself. Uh, so yeah, so it was in, in that way, it, it was kind of like, I mean, it's, uh, I always, um, I always love the story about, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Breslin who, you know, uh, a legendary journalist, uh, you know, he's, you know, written many great stories, uh, many famous stories, but perhaps the most famous was one he wrote about JFK's grave digger. Uh, you know, and the whole idea was everyone, there was like a pet press scrum around, you know, the, uh, John F. Kennedy's grave, but no one was talking to the grave digger. And he figured, well, if everyone's going to be writing up this same story tomorrow, let me get a different angle. You know, let me talk to the guy who actually dug the grave. So that's kind of I kind of like taking that tack with all of these areas, just thinking about who has a different perspective. What can I learn? What other ways can I think about this? Uh, so that was really that was really my my sort of like my guiding my guiding star, you know, through every chapter. So then how did you choose? Because you mentioned, you know, over 30 stadiums and or venues and some of them came across you just came across them in route from point A to point B how did you map out beforehand the places you wanted to hit did you have a, a master list where you like uh, Carrie Matheson and Homeland with a giant cork board with a map of the US <laughs> like what made you pick all right I want to go to Fenway I want to go to Oakland I want to go here I want to go there what was the criteria that you had in mind before you hit the road well, again, so yeah, it was a. I mean, I absolutely had a wish list, and I pretty much got to all of them. There might be, might have been a couple that I didn't get to hit, uh, but that list was completely predicated on those topic areas, like the idea of each chapter, the way that how I wanted to break down the book, how I wanted to break down each chapter. So, like for a chapter about old school stadiums, you know, and kind of like talk, you know, talking about issues like of of history and the quirks of the stadium and how you know like sort of fandom is manifest there versus a new stadium. Um, I so, so obviously I put Fenway on the list, Wrigley on the list, and Lambeau Field, you know, because those were the places that kind of 
most embody that kind of old school historic vibe. Um, and I, so I did that kind of, you know, for each chapter, you know, each, each of those along the way, all the way to chapter 11, which is about life after sports or kind of, you know, what happens to these places, you know, that we loved going to after the teams and the fans move on. Um, and so for me, you know, that was, I wanted to think about all the different angles of that, but the main place I wanted to hit was, uh, the Silverdome in Pontiac, Michigan, which is in a, basically for all intents and purposes, an abandoned sports stadium that, you know, that is owned privately owned at this point, sold at auction, uh, in a basically in an emergency state auction when uh, when Pontiac was in receivership uh, going through bankruptcy uh, with the state of Michigan, uh, and it's behind barbed wire, you know, and cement blockers, and it's just it's just like it, it, I got a rare tour of the facility. I got to walk through the concourses and walk on the field and go up into the upper decks and down into the locker room where there's black mold everywhere. And it looks like in a post-apocalyptic, you know, sort of scene. Uh, it's you've probably seen photos of it because uh, they've they've been they've been some of them have been across the internet, uh, some officially sanctioned and some not, where photographers have snuck in. Um, but it's just an amazing place, and it's incredible to look at this, to walk through this place, and think about how many people came here, how many people, like how much this venue meant to this city, to this community, and now look at it, what happens to it. Uh, but again, it's and not WrestleMania three was there. Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant, and now it's just a graveyard. <laughs> yeah, dude, you know for sure. It's like that is a big deal, you know. And now it is. It's literally just like a stadium graveyard, and I think it's going to be demolished this year, which in some ways is is a, in, well, in many ways, in probably every way, is a good thing because at this point it's just become a blight on the city. Uh, but that's you know. So I wanted to so so obviously to me talking about the life after sports that represented that. Uh, I, you know, I interviewed folks um, about the Astrodome and then uh, but then also I tried to take some different angles and that's I won't give everything away in the chapter, but I also wanted to see how things can go well. And so I went out to Salt Lake City where the, you know, the Winter Olympics were held in 2002 and they actually did an amazing job of preserving all of their venues, all the Olympic venues and kind of transforming them into having like a real vibrant legacy that so that so that the games can live on, you know, whether they transition the venues into something different that can be used by the community or they become uh, training centers for future Olympic athletes or whatever. They become like a concert venue, but they did a really thoughtful planning that went into it. So again, I wanted to sort of touch on it from all these angles. And then as I thought about those angles, I wanted to think about which venues really represented that, which were, were really great illustrate, you know, illustrative, uh, um, you know, examples to you know that i could dive into so i really sort of mapped it out that way and kind of like just two or three per chapter and that's when the homeland corkboard came in because <laughs> obviously you know i'm dealing with like you know three or four different sports they have different seasons they align at different times of the year and so i'm trying to like jigsaw together like all these different schedules so that i can you know hit two games in green bay after two games in ann arbor michigan uh, you know, but then make sure that I could also get down to New Orleans and Dallas in time and, you know, trying to align all those home games. It was it was a little tough. It was definitely like there was a not a lot of wiggle room. I had to miss some important life events for people that I'm close to. But, uh -oh. I hope you, know, you get them a free copy of the book afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I should do that. It's a good idea. <laughs> Weddings and bachelor parties and showing up late to, you know, to important functions like those. But that was just, you know. 
I, I just, that was what I had to do. Yeah. It was definitely like, it was a life on the road of just like constant emailing to, you know, uh, sports PR folks and like trying to get, you know, trying to get the go ahead that I'm going to be allowed in. And oftentimes, you know, these guys got bigger, bigger things on their plate, uh, than just letting one guy in, you know, working on a book project. So there were some times I would show up like in town and not necessarily know if I was really getting the final green light. They'd usually indicated that I would, but like, didn't necessarily uh, formalize it, but it, it, it worked out for the most part. So uh, no complaints. Uh, and one more suggestion. When you give the people the books, the people that you missed those life events with, you autograph the chapter that you missed their life event to go cover. <laughs> that way it's real personalized, you know? That's, that's actually a really good idea. I should like <laughs> highlight like the specific passages of where I was when you were getting married. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> um, all right, let's dig into some of the stuff. And you alluded to this earlier, so you know, by all means, uh, I don't want to cannibalize uh, your book readership. So if there's anything here you don't want to give too much away on and that you want to dive, you know, uh, diverge to the book, feel free. Uh, but I want to ask a couple questions about specific experiences you had. So many just from the press you've done and, and sort of blurbs from the book, just these human interest stories you come across. A guy like Big Mike, who you've already mentioned, a scalper in Cleveland, or uh, a lot of the photos you had on your website about this, about uh, Slugger, the mascot in Kansas City. Or I heard you do an interview about a guy who uh, is a vendor in the Superdome in New Orleans who actually used to live there during Katrina. Uh, best human interest story, because you came across so many characters and so many backstories. What's the one story, human interest-wise, that has stuck with you the most from what was it, 13 months on the road? Yeah. Well, honestly, honestly, there are two. Uh, there are two that I, I, I mean, if I'm saying the two that have really kind of stuck with me the most, uh, or you know, the one that stuck with me the most, I can't, I can't separate uh, Raymond Smith, who's that vendor in New Orleans, um, who is someone you know that I've, I've, I've remained in touch with. Uh, so basically, uh, as you said. You know, he and his family had to shack up in the Superdome during Katrina for, you know, for a few days when when, you know, the, the the stadium was used as a refuge of last resort. And it was not by no means was it a pleasant experience for him or his family. And it's it sort of haunted him. And the way that it's put his life into turmoil since then, you know, spreading him scattering him and his family all across the country. He wasn't he wasn't you know, he was in Houston for a couple of years. Uh, but never really you know, got a foothold on life again. You know, didn't have a job. You know, didn't necessarily have uh, you know the best place to live. And you know, so for the last at this point, 10, 12 years, uh, he's basically just been kind of in spiral mode, just trying to get a grasp on life since you know Katrina kind of you know took everything away from him, and you know just sent him into this free fall of sorts. Uh, and he's dealing with you know some some kind of like mental health uh, repercussions as well, some PTSD type stuff. And but adding insult to injury, or if you want to call it, uh, he has to go back every Sunday to the Superdome, sort of you know the ground zero for him of this life that's you know this this life turned into chaos. Uh, because that's the only place he can work. It's the only place he can get a job in New Orleans. There's not a lot of o job opportunities, um, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, still trying to recover from Katrina. You know, it, it's really a, it's a, you know, service sector economy. Um, you know, it's a tourist economy. Um, and a lot of the construction jobs post Katrina didn't necessarily go to local folks 
there were uh, you know people were out laborers were brought in from uh, from outside the city because they would work more cheaply, which isn't necessarily you know the most uh, genuine way to rebuild a place. If you really want to rebuild it, it would be to you know offer jobs to local people and pay them an honest wage. But he but he has to he goes back there every Sunday when the Saints when the Saints are playing a home game and he you know. He treks up and down the aisles, lugging a, a you know a tray of beer and you know hoping for tips. And he sort of you know he puts like a mental block you know over his mind when he goes in there because it's for him it's such a a, a haunted place. It's such a, a place pregnant with meaning that you know he can't let his mind go there. He just ha- you know he has to be there to make to make a living. And it's just like what an I a, a terrible irony. Uh, that this is the place that he has to return to. Um, I think he would love to get a, you know, a job that doesn't involve going to the Superdome. I think he would love to never see that place again, even though he loves the saints. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely some compartmentalization that goes on in that city when it comes to the saints. Uh, but he's, he's, he's a man who's, who stuck with me and anything I can do for him, if, if you have any New Orleans listeners looking, you know, looking for an employee, uh, I can put you in touch. Um, and the other the other guy is the amazing Sladek. He's a slight a different different tone here, but he's he is a halftime performer. You may have seen him on TNT, you know, during the all star game or during the finals. Uh, Charles Barkley and Shaq and the crew always cut to him because they just love him so much. He's like the 60 year old guy who climbs six chairs, 25 feet in the air, you know, in a, in a, in a bedazzled onesie and, uh, and does handstands (laughs) on top of this tower of chairs. And it's amazing. And, you know, I just do a really, uh, a really deep profile of him and sort of the path, the winding path he took to be, to make it to an NBA arena because he didn't, he was what into his 50s by the time he broke into the NBA circuit. He spent 30 years on the circus as a circus act, traveling around the country. Uh, he's had some ups and downs in his life too, and it's just it's just this amazing kind of you would never think that a guy like that, you know, that kind of backstory is the person who's making a living, you know, in a, thanks to a, a professional American sports league. And so it's just kind of cool seeing those intersections. That's so that's for two very different reasons, those two guys are my, you know, are my are my ride or dies from from the book <laughs> in the arena. But again, that's sports, right? It takes you from some sad, tragic yet redemptive tales to the weird and absurd and circus-like, literally in this case. So that's why I think a book like this really really hits home. I want to ask you some specifics about about places. So, let, so let's get to places now. What's what's the one venue that? It's going to be a two-part question. What's the one that pleasantly surprised you the most? So you had the lowest expectations, but it actually turned out, wow, this place is not what I expected. And then the one that disappointed you, that you had high hopes and you went in and you said, oh, this is not what I expected. Yeah, I'll start with, uh, I'll start with that, that one. And this is not meant to come off as an insult uh, in any way. <laughs> with because, all due well, respect, just, he's saying. With, with all due respect, uh, Wrigley Field um, Hot is take. the one that – that disappointed me the most. And I'm not saying that it's not a top five, you know, MLB park. I think it probably is, although probably in the bottom, bottom of that top five for me. Uh, and look, you know, seeing the Ivy for the first time is amazing. 
Um, I got to I got to actually trim the ivy. I got an ivy trimming lesson. I got a ball out of the ivy. I'm actually I got that ball on my desk right now. Nice. It literally came out of the ivy. Uh, so super. I mean, it's just. I mean, obviously, it's it's one of those keepsake venues. It's a one of a kind place. But I was there the first year that those giant video boards were put in, mm. and it just completely threw the kind of like chi of the ballpark off balance. Uh, I think, I mean, maybe they've hit a little bit more of a stride with how to use those boards, you know, adjusting the volume, you know, the color schemes or, you know, just like what kind of features, you know, video features they're playing on it. But it really felt like they were kind of groping to figure out how to, you know, how to use these big new toys. It was like a toddler with a bazooka gun and they just didn't know what they were doing with it. So it, kind of, it just threw it off for me. Um, again, you know, it's not saying that, you know, I wouldn't love to see a game at Wrigley any day of the week. I would, but I just felt like there was, you know, something was lost in translation when, when, when those boards were introduced, um, or not lost in translation. Something was just lost. Yeah. Um, it's a little incongruous. I, I, I get that. That's a good reason to, to be a little disappointed, not in Wrigley itself, but in the, the modernization clashing with what's supposed to be a nice vintage feel. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and then sort of actually, sort of the, the inverse of that was going to AT&T Stadium uh, where the Dallas Cowboys play. And, you know, having read so much about that and knowing, you know, all about the Cowboys and Jerry Jones, their ostentatious owner, you know, I was expecting this just to be like a really tacky kind of, you know, loud place that didn't where where sports didn't matter. And that actually was exactly what it was. But it turned out to be really fun. <laughs> You know, like they like they made no bones about it. They just really want you to have a good time. They're all about partying, you know, from the every tailgate outside of the stadium had it seemed like it had an amateur DJ like spinning um, or, or, you know, creating a custom playlist, you know, to the, the, the official pavilions where beer was flowing and dance troops were dancing uh, to a postgame concert outside in the same pavilions, literally like, like a giant concert where fans from the Cowboys and the Seahawks who they were playing were dancing together and nobody seemed to care who won. Um, and the Cowboys won. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the Cowboys lost, uh, the Seahawks won. And, but like, as soon as they walked out, it didn't matter because it was all about the experience, you know, being at this, this new icon of sports. Uh, so that was, you know, for what they've achieved there, I'm not saying I would want that to be my, you know, the place where my, uh, my favorite team played, but it's a pretty it's a pretty fun place to see a game. So in that sense, I was I was I was I, I was I was pleasantly surprised. It's interesting that teams like the Cowboys, who at least are good right now, are going that way, too. Because As a guy who worked for the, the Padres last year, I know what it's like when the product in the field isn't bringing people in. So you try and make everything else around that experience. That's why you come to the game, right? For the party atmosphere, for the DJs, for the beer, whatever. But uh, interesting that the Cowboys are doing that, too. But I guess. It's 2017, right? Got to keep people's people's attention. Well, I think you know. I, I think I think there's a couple things there. One is that I think for the Cowboys, they don't necessarily see it as being, um, you, know, it, you know. I think they see it, you know, it, you know, mutually exclusive from the the product on the field. Like they want people coming no matter what. And if there's a good product on the field, then great. But you know, when they built this, you know, they were the first ones. Jerry Jones was the first one who to say, you know, I want to build a a, a global sports and entertainment destination, and which is exactly what he did. And that's kind of what you see now 
with, you know, what they're going to build in Englewood for the Rams and Chargers, uh, what they just opened in Atlanta for the Falcons, sort of what the Vikings tried to do with U.S. Bank. It's even what the Dolphins are trying to do with their rent with their renovations. They specifically use that term, you know, global sports and entertainment, you know, destination. And to do that, I think you have to go beyond, you know, it's got to be the building itself. It has to be, you know, the, uh, you know, the amenities inside and it's got to be sort of the vibe, uh, you know, everything down to, you know, down to the smallest details when you walk into the place, you know, walking into to the Cowboys, the Cowboys stadium, people don't walk in, they run in. You know, they're like whooping it up. It's like this big, it's like a, if you, it's like a, like a, like a cow or a bull stampede, a bull run. It's just, people are just so excited to get into this building. And that's amazing that they've, they've been able to cultivate that. Um, But it's interesting that you bring up the Padres. I think for baseball, it's a, it's a slightly different thing. And, you know, which is, I I talk about this in the chapter where I hung out with Slugger and talk about, you know, uh, fan entertainment, but this idea of winning versus fun. And that 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 they have to be mutually exclusive. Um, and I think that the Royals, I, I was there at an interesting time because they were really. It was a year that they would eventually win the World Series in 2015, but they were really struggling with it because their team sucked for like I don't know 30 years, and you know they worked hard over the the previous decade to sort of build this really fun at the ballpark vibe, like trying to recreate an NBA arena you know, inside the ballpark with like an MC and like games on the, you know, on the, on the jumbotron, uh, in between innings, but then all of a sudden they get good for one year and the ownership's like, nah, screw this. Let's go back to baseball. Um, so that's, yeah, it, it's interesting because it's an ongoing debate and I don't know that they need to be separate. Maybe the cowboy model in that sense is like, has, a, is a little bit more insight, you know, from a business perspective, but I also get it why like team owners don't want to, you know, especially for baseball where it's, it's, it's all about the traditionalists. They kind of want to, you know, bring it back to like the roots of the game. Uh, right. Cracker Jack again, and not poke uh, lobster bowls in center field, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I think they would happily sell you a poke bowl if they can, you know, if they can have a good margin for on $22. It. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually funny because they've all embraced the also like like the theme nights, like Star Wars nights and stuff uh-huh. like that. All that shit started in the minor leagues, man. It's like you know they all say how you know we don't want to be minor league, like oh that's so minor league. All this crap that it trickles up. It's a trickle up economy of uh, of like gimmicks and promotions. You know, uh, and you have these hundred and fifty test markets across the country before you get to the top yeah. level. So why not yeah. a little little crowdsourcing? Absolutely, and it eventually does. It eventually does get up there. It's a matter of like what's you know, what they really adopt and how long they hold on to it before they, you know, they start clutching their pearls again and saying, no, we need to get back to baseball. But I think they're, you know, it's always been, that's always, there's always been that element, you know, we, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know, Bill Veck, he was sort of like the original showman. The Godfather, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, it's all, and obviously like all the other baseball owners hated him and thought he was like, you know, a total, uh, you know, he was, he was the circus, he was the circus act. He was the, you know, the black sheep of the baseball family, but he was, he was amazing. He was such an outside the box thinker when it came to, you know, getting people to the ballpark and what it meant to have a good time at a game. And we need those kind of people. Otherwise, you know, baseball games can be pretty boring. And I say that as a baseball fan, you know? Yeah. What, what Bill Beck would have done with Twitter and with the technology today and uh, mass producing of costumes and giveaways, ah, the world yeah. sadly will never know. Um, I, I still have a lot I want to run through you with, Rafi. So we're going to do some quick hitters here. Um, right. Quick matchups. 
Uh, I try and pick some that just juxtapose themselves, and you tell me from a full fan experience, so from morning of game day until you get home at night, that includes everything around the stadium, the game itself, before, after, you're going to pick one. So you get to see a game at Cowboy Stadium or Lambeau Field. Which one would you recommend to somebody? Lambeau Field. Madison Square Garden or Staples Center? Mm. Madison Square Garden. And then this you probably alluded to a little bit earlier, but Fenway or Wrigley? Fenway, not close. Not oh, not close. Got it. What about the MSG versus Staples Center? Which why why were you a little reluctant on that one? Because the other two you seem pretty pretty set. I was reluctant on that one because I haven't been to Staples Center. Oh well, <laughs> that would be that would be a good reason why then we can we can knock that one from the record then we can strike it. <laughs> um, it's 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 a great place. I highly recommend you heading there as well. It's almost like Madison Square Garden as if they if they built it now though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear great things, and great things about LA Live too. Just the whole, the whole sort of like uh, bigger, you know, the bigger campus that they're building out there. Yeah, and much less. I mean, you and I both love MSG. It's probably my favorite arena in the world. But getting there is a pain in the ass. There's too many people. <laughs> There's Penn Station yeah. to deal with, and LA Live where it is, it's just nice and a little bit more relaxed. Very, very California. Um, what about? Give me uh, from what you came across, maybe a top three. If, if, if someone's making a, a before-you-die, things you must do from sports venues, what are like the top three to five that you are going to be on your list that you're going to insist someone puts on theirs? All right. The, is this just places to go or like things to do at them? Uh, let's, let's, do, let's go specific. Let's do, say things to do at them. Okay. Well, so I'm a, this is going to be – these will be things that you might not actually get to do just because I obviously had uh, – that was the one benefit of spending a year on the road is I got to ingratiate myself with all these people until finally they, they said, all right, stop pestering us. All right, you, you wore do them this. down. <laughs> yeah, I wore them down. So the absolute number one thing that I wish everyone could do is get to shoot a T-shirt gun at a, at a stadium. Oh, that looks like so much fun. It is so much fun. It's everything you've imagined and more. It's because you could, you know, we've all been on the other side of the T-shirt gun, right? Just like waving our hands. Oh, yeah. Like, praying that this terrible t-shirt that will never fit and will never wear lands in our hands. Uh, but being on the, uh, being on the, the shooting side on the, you know, on the, I don't know, the, I guess that's not the business end, but on the trigger side of the cannon, it, um, it's just so like the, the fact that like where you point it, it basically, you create like a little wave of people with the hands going up. You have all the power. Like, you have all the power. Everyone's so excited to see you. It's like this, just all these good vibes. It's like pure love just washing over you. And all they want is a T-shirt. It was, that was, that was really, really fun. Um, I guess the next thing I would say, and, um, and I got to do that uh, at, a, at, a, at a college game, at a, at a Rutgers game. I wouldn't necessarily say you need to go to, to the rack in Piscataway, but <laughs> if you can... Uh, but if they'll let you shoot a T-shirt gun, then go to Worth the rack. Uh, yeah. Then uh, in uh, Kansas City, I got to run uh, behind the uh, – the they do a hot dog race, like a mascot race. I was supposed to be in the mascot race, but I got bumped. I got bumped from the hot dog race because the the radio – their radio announcer I apparently had some friends that he promised would get to do it. Uh, so of I got course. to run – I got to run behind the mascots on the field, which was was kind of more fun because it was like 95 degrees in, um, you know, a Kansas City summer. And those costumes do not smell good on the, you know, 
on the outside or on, on the inside. So I was pretty, I was pretty fine with just being, you know, a few feet behind them uh, and chasing after, but that's really fun. As you'd imagine, like putting, you know, getting to run on the field is just such, getting on the, on the field in general is such a thrill, you know, anytime you get to do that. Um, and lastly, this isn't at a stadium, but I got to do, uh, to take a ride on the Olympic official Olympic bobsled track in Salt Lake city because uh, they keep it operational and they keep it open to the public. You can pay to take a bobsled ride. And I don't know that I would want to do it again because uh, it was perhaps legitimately the most scary thing I've ever done in my life. It's just you're going down. I mean, you're going down this thing at top speed and you can't see in front of you because all you see is the helmet of the person in front of you. So you don't know which way you're going next. You have you're going so fast and you can't control yourself. Um you know, in any way, it's like you're going, obviously you're going faster in a car, but like you can apply the brakes if you feel like you're going too fast. Here, you are just out of control. You have, you literally have no control. Uh, I'm so sure I, it's someone trained that's, that's driving it, right? They don't just throw you in there with your buddy, I, I hope. They actually, yeah, they actually bring in the, ma- they actually bring in uh, mascots from over the, con- <laughs> all over the country and they just, no, they have, they have Come on, pilots. Slugger, you and me in the bobsled. I, I, rode, I rode with Slugger and the San Diego chicken. Um <laughs> Yeah, they, no, they have they have like trained pilots, uh, oh, okay. some of whom actually were Olympic athletes, and and I as I rode down this, uh, actually I'll tell you a good story, uh, story, which is you know I was a little bit worried uh, going into this uh, that I was going to get hurt um, because it does happen. You have to sign you know however many you know waivers that you will, won't sue if you're you know if your head falls off, um, and. So and then I, you know, as we're going up the mountain, I see a bunch of like EMT stationed at the bottom of the ride. Oh, uh, so I walk, I walk up to him, yeah, because that's not that's not heartening for me. Uh, and so I ask him like, oh, you know, how often do people get hurt? Does that really happen? What you know, what do you think? Uh, and they proceeded to tell me they just they just say um, I happened to be there right around the same time as Sundance, so there was like a I guess a celeb vibe in the air, and they just told me. Uh, that uh, Joey Fatone uh, wrote it last year, uh, and he's uh, not as tall as you think. Uh, and that's I didn't really answer my question, <laughs> but, but a that fun, was all a they- fun fact for trivia night, I guess, down the road. <laughs> so, if anyone ever asks you, Joey Fatone, not as tall as you think. Uh, but as I as I went down this ride, I swear to you, I was I I I was making involuntary noises, just like little yelps and squeals. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was just like it was a sensation I had never had before, and don't necessarily want to have again. But you should do it once, uh, just just once. Well, it's kind of like flying in a plane, right? You have no control over anything, but at least you're you're looking around and you feel at ease. When you're in the bobsled, it's very relative. You feel what's happening. That's right. Well, that's exactly right. The difference is that is that when you're in a plane, you don't feel like you're going 500 miles an hour, even though you're not going 500 miles. You're only going like 60 or 70 in the bobsled. You feel like you're going 500 miles an hour. And that's the key distinction. Oh, that is pretty well. No, I, that was never on my list of things to do. But now next time I'm in Lake Placid or Salt Lake, maybe I'll, I'll yeah, add it to it. Totally. That's um, right. We always finish with two quick segments here on the show, Rafi. But last question before we get to those just about the book uh, at large. If you're going to have like one big takeaway about sports venues, their place in America after you saw everything you saw and experienced everything you experienced, what's your big takeaway, your big theme about what these things mean to us as a people, as a country? Yeah, I've got a few takeaways uh, sort of in, on different levels. Um, 
one is on a you know because stadiums are, you know are now so much you know they're in the news constantly and we're talking about like how much money taxpayers are subsidizing you know uh, you know billionaire sports owners for them uh, and we, we we often hear about how there's economic benefit or all these other all these other benefits to it and I my one of my huge takeaways talking with economists and you know people who spend time studying these things is that that is absolute 100% bullshit. There is no economic benefit to stadiums. We might love them. We could want them to be built. Uh, if we want to be honest about that, we can have honest conversations about it. Uh, if we want to pay for them, we can we can be honest about that too. But then maybe we're you know we're spending that money on stadiums instead of uh, instead of you know school systems or fixing potholes or whatever. But you know that we need to we need to sort of be realistic about that as we see these numbers get more astronomical in terms of what we're giving sports owners they are not uh economic drivers they will not rebuild uh, a community at large um it is corporate welfare um 100% uh unfortunately because sports owners have monopolies over these things and they can move their teams wherever they want and there's a limited supply and seemingly infinite demand we might keep paying for it but we just need to be honest about the fact that we are participating in a corporate welfare system. Uh, that's one takeaway, uh, not necessarily a happy one, but a, a, a reality. Um, the next one, a little bit more levity, and this is true. This is what I wrote. This is my I wrote, I wrote a uh, op-ed for the Washington Post, and this was actually what I wrote for them. And that is my my true number one takeaway uh, from traveling, specifically traveling for a year to stadiums was to pee every chance you get. Uh, and that, that is, that is, you know, across sports, across venues, uh, you can check out the, check out the op-ed if you want to get a little bit more details. I'll try not to get too scatological right now. Uh, but let me just suffice it to say, if you're going to a game, don't take your bladder for granted, uh, empty it every chance you get. Uh, and then lastly, and this is more just, this was more like less on the ground and more kind of like thinking philosophically or, you know, just after the fact, like, what did this experience mean to me? Like, what, what am I really taking away from it? And that was that, you know, the best way to watch a game, because I got to watch it from so many interesting angles and interesting places, whether it was I got to sit in owner's boxes and I sat in the cheap seats and I, you know, I watched games with mascots and I watched games, you know, from the control room and from you know, with security guards. But the absolute best way to watch a game is with a fan. Uh, and what I mean by that is someone who actually cares, someone who gives a shit, because that's what makes sports so much fun is that passion and that you know, the fact that something is on the line. So if you're going to watch or you're going to go to a game and you're going to be sort of, you know, blase about it and, you know, too cool for it, then you're not going to get anything out of it. You know, you go with someone who cares about it or be someone who cares about it. And that's the best way to watch a game. That's what makes sports so much fun. So those are my those are my three takeaways with varying level, varying levels of serious. I mean, of, uh, you know, levity and and, uh, and seriousness, but all true. I love it. Taxes and piss and face paint. All all three yeah. wrapped up in one. <laughs> Uh, two segments before we go, Rafi. This one, I always give my guests a chance to turn the tables on me and ask me any one question if they want. You don't have to take me up on the offer, but if you'd like to ask me anything, fire away. Well, so you said you worked for the Padres. So what was the weirdest thing you learned during your time working for the Padres related to stadiums? Related to the stadiums? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, I'm, I think... Hmm. 
probably just the the level of access that the normal fan doesn't have. Like when I was a kid growing up, right, you always think, oh, there's just these – the tickets you buy, they're all available online. If you have enough money, you can get into this seat or whatever. But then – and this isn't just the Padres. This is any kind of behind-the-scenes sports work I've done. There are always the places you can only get to, the seats you can only get if you know somebody or if you have uh, you know, a, corporate, a corporation you know, holding the box or uh, an inn. You know, there, there's – just as much as you'd like to think that there's the common fan's dream that if I just saved up enough money or uh, bought the ticket at the right time, I can do anything I want in the stadium, that's not the case. You're always going to run into some red tape unless you get some kind of connection or hookup. Um, so I think that for me was, was very a, a very interesting experience to see for sure. Right. That's good. That's a good takeaway. And Although, of course, you could also get access by reading The Arena. Yes, you could do that, or or by writing your own version and just telling people that you're trying to do a follow up, and you know, get, get your intro to it that way. <laughs> All right, fun five, Rafi. These are five quick, fun questions designed for you and you alone. Feel free to spend as little or as much time on them as possible. What was the first ever stadium? Question number one. First ever sports venue you visited or remember visiting as a kid? Um, it was um, Memorial Stadium uh, in uh, in Baltimore. Uh, that's where the Orioles played before uh, Camden Yards. Uh, I remember going there um, with my grandfather. It must have been in the late 80s. Uh, I guess I suppose early 90s. I forget. I think Camden opened maybe like 91, 92. So it would have been, you know, I was born in 1983. So I would have been like, you know, six or seven years old or something. I remember taking the train um, up to up to the game and, uh, and and catching it there. I can't tell you who played or anything like that. But that was definitely the first big league stadium that I went to. Question number two. If you could visit any non-existent stadium in its prime, so from the Roman Coliseum until Memorial mm-hmm. Stadium, anyone you never went to, but you get to go for an event at its peak, it's hopping, it's just awesome, which one would you want to go see? Well, shoot, man. If you can do any stadium of all time, how do you not go back to antiquity? It would have to be the, either the Roman Coliseum or Circus Maximus which was a a hippodrome, a horse racing uh, facility that actually sat 250,000 people. Uh, Think about that. That's five times the size of the Roman Coliseum. Uh, So, yeah, I would have to check out out one of those two. And Star Wars night there must have been freaking bananas. Uh, (laughs) Question number three, uh, what about international? Is there any one international venue that you would want to go to above all others? What would it be? I don't know if there's a... One international venue that I well, I mean, I really want to go, you know, to see some Japanese baseball games. Um, it's like Tokyo Dome. It, that always looks like a good time online. Yeah, it just seems like such a great, uh, a great fan experience, and really different from you know the the like uh, U.S. or North American baseball. That that's you know that's always kind of been um, you know um, you know where I wanted where I wanted to where I wanted to go just from an experience perspective. But you know what? You know what? This is maybe not so exciting, but I would love to go to Wimbledon. I really enjoy uh, enjoy seeing uh, live tennis, and Wimbledon is such a uh, you know a historic venue in its own right that that would be a great place to, to you know to see a match. That is exciting. That's the pinnacle of the tennis world. That's a good answer. Yeah. Don't uh, yeah. don't don't answer shame yourself. Uh, <laughs> question number four. You saw a lot of them, uh, but best naming rights deal at an arena. Like, what's the one that makes you either shake your head or laugh, or that actually you kind of think works well i remember uh, there's so many that are terrible oh yeah uh, 
um, the one that I actually I, I thought it couldn't get worse than Smoothie King Center, which is uh, in New Orleans where the yeah. Pelicans play. But when the White Sox changed their name to Guaranteed Rate Field last year, um, I I think that was pretty much rock bottom. Yeah, that one takes. Did you even know what they call that? Is it like the rate now, or do they still call it Old Comiskey or anything? Do you have any idea? I don't. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Ugh, I don't know if they have an, an abbreviation for it. That's but, a tough uh, one. Yeah, that is that is the worst name I've ever heard. Last question in the fun five, Rafi. Are you simply? I'm sure you saw a lot of them in your travels. Are you pro or anti the wave? Oh, that's tough. It's tough because I grew up going to games uh, at Yankee Stadium, sitting in the bleachers with, um, you know, some of the bleacher creatures, and they are so anti wave that it kind of uh, it kind of rubbed off on me. I, I will say that when I was a kid, I remember enjoying the wave, but then I think I was maybe just uh, I was trained, you know, to to look down on anyone who would uh, who would think to do the wave uh, at old Yankee Stadium. So uh, I think there's a there's a there's a small part of me that is that is secretly excited every time I see the wave, and then uh, and then the the rest of me uh, thinks about. Uh, Bald Vinny and all the other guys in the bleacher, <laughs> the, the bleacher creatures, and what they would say. Uh, Peter Pan never grow up. Let the litter, the inner wave lover and child inside of you uh, <laughs> live free. Uh, Rafi Cohen, I've already kept you longer than I promised, man. You got a baby daughter to go take care of. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I love this was an amazing chat. Really appreciate it. Uh, let people know where they can find a the book, but then b where to keep up with you on social media or wherever else you want. For sure. Uh, well, the book is available everywhere, whether you know Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, just uh, you, uh, the arena inside the tailgating, ticket scalping, mascot racing, dubiously funded and possibly haunted monuments of American sport. If that's too long, you can just Google the arena and my name, uh, Rafi Cohan, and I'm sure it'll pop up. Available in bookstores everywhere as well. Um, my website is uh, Rafi Cohan, R-A-F-I-K-O-H-A-N.com. I've got some, you know, some more information about the book there. I've got some gallery galleries of photos uh, from, uh, you know, from my year on the road. Uh, if you're interested in checking that out, as well as some other articles I've written, um, my Twitter is at Rafi underscore Cohan. That's on the website too. I'm not really good at Twitter. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's the best place to keep up with me, but I could use some more followers for sure. Couldn't we all? Uh, well, thanks, Rafi. This was great, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, enjoy some time at, at home now, uh, just in our, in our standard old New York City area sports arenas. I appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. And thanks to you guys for listening. Make sure to visit MikeJanella.com. And I'll have all of Rafi's stuff and links to all of his places in case you missed any of it or were just too lazy to write them down. You can also see all previous episodes of the show so you can catch up if there's any that you have missed. Or if you're a first-time listener, you can go back and catch those as well. Make sure to find this podcast anywhere you subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that kind of fun stuff. Review it, rate it, subscribe. I would love you forever. Thanks one more time to Rafi Gohan, author of The Arena, and thanks to you guys for stopping by. We'll try and do better next time. See ya!